Thank you for downloading this Desenio podcast. For more information, visit DesenioDaily.com. We hope you enjoy the programme. Hello, everyone, and welcome to After the Showroom, the realities of sustainable design. My name is Ollie Stratford. I'm the editor-in-chief of Desenio, uh, the quarterly journal of design. Uh, we've curated this talk tonight and invited the panellists. And the idea really is to look at sustainability within um, product and furniture design, but to have a discussion that's maybe not as centred upon material and production processes as sometimes these discussions are, and which looks a little bit more at um, the use of products and how products are designed to be reused or refurbished or recycled in some form. So what we're interested in here is uh, the afterlife, I guess, and what happens once something has been sold and enters into uh, use. So our panellists for this evening are Christian Ida Ludgard, uh, Senior Vice President of Products and Brands at Flock, Inika Hans, uh, Designer of Products, Furniture and Spaces, as well as Professor of Design and Social Context at the University of the Arts Berlin, and Caroline Till, uh, co-founder of the Franklin Till Futures Research Agency and former course leader of the MA Future Textiles course at Central St. Martins. Uh, we were due to have Amy Hunting as well, who's unfortunately not able to join us, so my apologies for that, but I mean, you have everyone else, so it's fine. All right, so let's start off. Um, so Caroline, I'm going to start with you, if I may. Um, what's the most helpful way of thinking about sustainability? Because so often the debate does focus on what material is something made from, what's the production process. Um, is that a helpful approach to the issue or does that limit it? And, and why is there maybe not so much discussion of the afterlife of products? I suppose as... Uh sort of somebody that specialises in looking at material innovation and the role that that can play in sustainability, I do believe that material has a massive role to play it, um, because effectively, if you think of it, if the material is the ingredients of, of the product, um, and uh, when I was running Material Futures, we always talked about um, materials as the sort of bedrock of design, and if you can rethink that from the bottom up, then, you know, you can make more sort of positive choices I think we are very divorced from knowing the the material um sort of origin of the products that we surround ourselves with um not just the material but the energy um you know if we actually knew how something was drawn from the earth and the 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 process it went through to to then be created something I think we would have a very different perception as consumers so I think it's it's right we're also at a point where we're obsessed with materiality I think students are particularly obsessed with materiality um which I think is a positive thing. We're kind of going through what we went through with the organic food movement, that we suddenly want to understand more about what we're putting into our bodies and we suddenly want to understand more about what's, you know, what goes into the things that we're surrounding ourselves with. But there's not enough information. I, I, I imagine that any given product that you might have bought in the last week you know do you actually really know what the raw material origin was the process of transformation it went through and if you don't know that can you really actually know you know where it should go at the end of its useful life if indeed it does have an end of its useful life so I don't think that we can divorce conversations about circularity about afterlife of products from having awareness of materiality and obviously there's a huge emphasis on a brand or a manufacturer to be 
educating us actually what you know what what is this the material origin and what is the process that this thing has gone through to be made and therefore how can it be you know considered in its afterlife whether that's about being designed to be disassembled or you know designed to be completely continuous which material innovation can you know allow so I do believe that material has a a huge role to play in the conversation. How successful are we um, in communicating those aspects of the product? So, for instance, you might see a product that's labelled as sustainable or eco-friendly or green or whatever, and those are all desirable traits, but they're also quite vague traits. It's very unclear as to what's actually meant by them. And as you say, when those supply chains that have led to the production are so baroque and complicated, how useful are those labels to a consumer? You know, there's there's lots of good intentions, I think, behind uh, those labels. Thing is that it's um, it turns into a forest, uh, and it's very sort of lacking in transparency of what they actually mean. And it's also um, a very sort of rough, a very coarse uh, way of sorting products. You know, being either you know um, deserving the label or not deserving, being sorted in two categories: binary, uh, either sustainable or not. Then the other problem is that uh, is that they vary. So what's what is a good label in the UK is not the same as is a good label in in Scandinavia. But there are some international standards out there. There's some international ways of documenting uh, documenting your environmental performance and your value chain, um, which you can, which we as manufacturers should be better at pushing. And I'm thinking of environmental product declarations. There's an ISO standard that tells you how to do it. And it communicates very effectively how products are made and, and, and the materials and the carbon footprint yeah. that arises yeah. from it. So I would, you know, we tend to fall back at, at looking at those as the, the way to navigate when you design and develop. How are you actually doing? Which decisions are you taking? And what impact does it have during development? And also as the best way to document the sustainability of, uh, of your product, at least upstream you know, um, in terms of materials and until the product is there on stage, what have you actually consumed? Inuki, you wanted to weigh in. Uh, it's very easy to say, yeah, we have to educate the, uh, the consumer because they can't see the forest for the trees. But uh, the consumer, as you were saying, they're not, you know, like if I buy things in the supermarket, I'm not reading every label. So it's our responsibility in a way as well, companies, me as a designer, to look at, at, it, at that, make sure that we have as least impact on these environmental issues and also through the way we use technology. Um, um, a label is fine, but of course, uh, yeah, I, I wonder how often... People really read that, and uh, you know, this, we have to take responsibility in how we make things. I mean, you mentioned educating the consumer, but how well placed are brands and designers to do that educating? Because actually, understanding these systems and and working out what is a sustainable choice it's really complicated, exactly. and you get incredibly yeah. different answers dependent on what ever metric someone goes by. So, mm. how easy is it during that design process to actually? do something with confidence that this is going to be sustainable and is going well, to have a long you life. You have to be careful that a, that a label is not a greenwasher, that it's not something, oh, yes, I'm doing, you know, there's a label, I'm fine, I'm sorted, you know. In a way, I think we, the, the, if you're looking at what is really sustainable is that we have to start producing less and that we have to start consuming less. Um, 
you know, even if we keep it, it, it all is ba still based on the fact that we use that we buy and and use as many objects as we are in in a kind of a system that we are in now, which is a very painful thing to uh, uh, realize because you know. I'm a designer. I like to design. You know, uh, uh, for companies, they need to feed people, uh, families who are relying on them. So the big problem is more: how are we going through this transition of uh, getting into to producing less and, and consuming less, which is actually the best option for uh, our planet? Mm. Then making and I, I don't. I have no problems with labels, but you know, labels are just putting a plaster on something, which is a problem. I mean, we've hit the topic of greenwashing earlier in the conversation. Than oh, yeah. I was expecting, but it's a good one, right? It's important. Um, Caroline, maybe you can help us out here. To, to what extent do these labels like sustainability kind of allow people to duck that challenge of overconsumption, which Inika set out? I think it's a massive issue and particularly how information is being perpetuated in a very surface way. Um, I was just in a discussion earlier about waste and I think, you know, we get journalists ringing us up on a daily basis saying, well, can you tell us some material stories or some product stories that are working with waste or, or that are working with recycled plastic? And, and, you know, and really you've got to ask yourself, you know, where's that waste stream coming from? Is, you know, sh is it is it really waste or is it just a resource? Is it is it if we're, you know, working with waste, are we just perpetuating, you know, a, a sort of a flawed system that could be, you know, more closed loop? So there's there's, there's sort of so many complexities to it. And I, I go back to sort of the, the question before in a way that I wonder if I suppose it's about responsibility and who where does the the kind of onus of responsibility stop and you know it's with the the brand to affect to more effectively communicate um you know how things need to be dealt with at, at the end of a product's life or indeed don't design the end of its life design for longevity and then <coughs> integrate aftercare systems and a, a more you know relationship with longevity or um i, I think we can consume fast and uh, if the material is correct. So if we copy nature's systems of degradability without, you know, detriment, then then we can, you know, as we're starting to see some fashion innovation type work going. So I don't think we always need to necessarily slow down, but we need to use material appropriately um, and we need to, to communicate properly and effectively how how we you know we deal with these either to keep them in useful life or to to help them end their life in a way that is not detrimental just to follow up on that i mean design and architecture are, i think are, are propositional disciplines right this is what we call them and, and there's there's of course uh, a lot of responsibility and obligation that goes with that so i think this is not just a matter of educating uh, educating the public but this is sort of work ethics in a way mm -hmm. if we are manufacturers if we are industrialists or designers or architects in particular uh, then you know th then we you know what do we believe in what are we willing to 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 do uh, to bring out new products will i will i sort of voluntarily enter into the hamster wheel force myself to launch so many new products uh, every trade show or will i do proper you know mm -hmm. and take the time it takes because i don't think my experience is that it's not really too challenging to understand what you have to do, how to navigate uh, a design process. It's you know ba some very basic uh, things, which is about materials, which is about uh, designing for disassembly, which is about uh, weight and longevity, 
these kind of uh, things. It's po perfectly possible to navigate. It's easy to comprehend even the hard bit is to stay true to the ideals and actually yeah, work on it until you manage to solve it. Yeah, yeah, but it's not so easy because it's it's easy to 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 say this, yeah, mm. but to implement it is the most complicated exactly. thing. You have all these life cycle assessments that you can uh, put on a piece of furniture and and or even if you're in the designing process, you could see what's the impact of if I do it like that on our water footprint or you know eco food and and then even if you if you say it, it's fine for the water it could be really damaging for something else so there's you can calculate you can put knowledge onto it um which is fascinating and i think also uh very uh good and interesting that that is happening more and that people are also in the design world uh, and in the companies uh are also really demanding that from them, themselves saying uh, to 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 look at it and and ask also what is the real impact of what i'm doing here uh, but these calculations are complicated sometimes and 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 if you flip them this side it it, it comes out with a completely different uh, so it's difficult it's and also the the kind of moral minefield because uh, you know okay if material is your your thing then you know or it might be biodiversity or it might be you know is how has the person that's made this been you know mm. is have they got the right conditions to to thrive is the um and and i almost think with the greenwashing question it's kind of coming back to your own moral compass as mm. a, as a consumer as a brand it's about putting your stake in the ground and saying you know we recognize that sustainability is such a multifaceted you know, having researched it for 15 years, specifically in relation to fashion textiles and thinking you're doing one thing right and, you know, there's a detrimental impact somewhere else down the line that you never foresaw. So sort of putting your stake in the ground and saying, you know, we've, we realise that this element is not perfect. However, we're going to try and develop a roadmap towards that. But, you know, what we are doing really well is this and we can back it up with X, Y, Z. And then as a consumer saying... I have to be honest that animal rights is my biggest thing. I mean, personally, I think I would be more towards the human story, but, um, and we have big arguments in the office because they call me, you know, mean to animals and stuff. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not massively seduced by the vegan conversation, even though as a passionate kind of environmentalist, I, sh I really probably should be. So uh, I think we can perhaps as consumers use our power more and sort of decide through our own moral compass the issue, almost a hierarchy of issues potentially because yes. it is so complicated and then make sure that we go hard at that and we find out all the information in relation yeah. to that issue. What is interesting is we're talking now about consumers and in a way consumers mm. are very important. Huh? Uh, but you are in a business where yes. you're in the contract business, which mm. is a different yeah. world in a way. If you're looking at the consumer world, what I find very fascinating is that we have uh, the new consumers, but which will also be the... Uh, uh, specifiers for the contract world in the future, they're all young generation and they are not so interested in uh, having more stuff. They, uh, if they are on a consumer level, they, um, they are more interested in buying experiences than, or going on a, on a holiday or whatever, than buying a table or something like that. What's interesting also in the, in the contract business is that there is also a lot changing there with specifiers and the architectural world demanding more. You know, if you, if you have big projects where uh, furniture has to be applied, it's very, the requirements are very often all these things about um, 
it has to be recyclable, it has to have uh, green footprints, things like that. And you mentioned that, um, you know, even if you can recycle or re or reupholster pieces, at one point a company is at a at a at a point where they have to make that decision, and it's also a point where they think. Oh, let's have something new, you know, because they don't want to have this old stuff. They they have the we are also in a society where everyone is so interested, you know, we we are used to changing things. You know, my grandmother used to have a table and stick with it for her whole life. But we are uh, even in the contract business, every 10 years there's a new environment or even five years people really uh, change things. How easy is it to foster that kind of attitude or ethic of um, sustainability or within a company? Because let's face it, we're in design. Everyone's in the business of production and consumption to an extent. And if the problem is overconsumption, why would companies seek to reduce that? Where does the motivation come from to encourage a new attitude, which maybe results in them selling less? The fact that the environment is <laughs> no, it's not enough. <laughs> but uh, but the regulations <laughs> are pretty lax around that, right? Yeah. Like, and people seem to take advantage of that fact. Well, I mean, hopefully there is going to be more of a squeeze, as in, you know, there is a. I, I feel very buoyed by what we've seen from a grassroots activism perspective, you know, and and so there is a kind of consumer pressure. Um, the legislation's not really coming, not. But um, I think there's some really interesting work done by somebody um, at London Business School, Professor Ianes Ianu, who is basically talking about the the kind of economic win of embedding sustainability in a business. And he talks specifically about how traceability, for example, is a is a massive um, and complete transparency is a huge. Um, desirable trait for investors and he has some amazing statistics in relation to the the performance of businesses that are really embedding sustainable innovation at the core versus those that aren't so it's kind of like how many more arguments do we need not you know that you, you should be doing it I think and I think we, maybe I, I sound a bit as if I'm a negative person but I think we have to be quite optimistic as well you know people have with Woolly socks and sandals have been talking about all kinds of things like this since the 70s. And we are moving, you know. Uh, it takes a while, I would say. You really have to allow that, you know, moving to another type of society where you have a different mindset really takes time. I think sometimes we tend to, to dock behind uh, the complexity. Because, I mean, as you said, you, you know, there's... Caroline, you said there's, there's um, maybe you could rank rank some challenges, and and I would promote that. I think you know the the climate climate crisis is very real, so that's you know that's a top top rank priority. I think uh, energy consumption uh, is very real. It's also related to climate the climate challenge. Um, the waste problem is very real. So there you go. You know, um, you, yeah, there's some places to to start making products that last. You know, is very real. Uh, you can you can you can address that. You can address uh, repairability. You can do that. But for a company, you know, the the challenge is um, is the patience uh, you need, the the confidence. You know, you, you know some, sometimes you just have to believe, and this sounds very naive, but you know, the, sometimes you just have to believe that the good will prevail. You know, right? The good will prevail. And I mean, show, give me one example of history that where where that hasn't been the case. Yes, there's been detours, there's been disasters, but the good has prevailed. You know, humanity moves forward, and this will yeah. too. So, uh, and how it doesn't mean you can't, you shouldn't work for it. 
I mean, as I said earlier, this, these are propositional disciplines. We have an obligation to work for it. And somehow we will profit from it, I'm sure. And I'm, somehow it will be devastating if we don't. So this is a kind of discussion we, uh, we, are, we have behind us in, uh, in, in, in the company where I work. But, um, but the challenge is, is you know, to mobilize the resources, to stay true to these ideals, to, to work according to the principles, and don't give up until you've omitted every drop of glue in your product or avoided any composite uh, component or you know, failed to use waste uh, in your production and acknowledge that as a resource. So we know there are certain things that help, right? So as you said, the material choice, can it be disassembled and recycled? Can it be repaired to ensure a long lifestyle? I mean, one metric of where we're at as an industry with that would be whether that's written into design briefs. Inika, it would be interesting to know from you when you work with companies, are those issues included as part of the brief? Are they seen as important or do they go missing? Yeah, but that's also, they're struggling because... Um, I'm working now on a project where we work on a plastic injection molded chair and, and it has to be plastic, you know, there's, and then the question is, do we use recycled plastic, biodegradable plastic? Uh, there's also other, but even with these biodegradable plastics, uh, the, somehow it, it turns out that the recycled plastic is better mm. than the biodegradable. Uh, and, but then you need, you, you want to work with a company that injection molds that piece that also is able to take it back and be able to recycle it. And these combinations are still very difficult to find. There's companies who like to to do injection molding with the recycled material, but to take it back is another step because they don't know what they get back, if it's spoiled, you know, and and then uh, to to guarantee a certain quality in the recycled material is also still uh, a big issue. I have also, in my studio, I have, for more than 20 years, I have a very nice piece, which was injection molded wood. And um, it's a tee to, uh, for golfing. You could stick it in the ground. And uh, if it's lost, if, if you forget to pick it up, it's kind of okay, because it's biodegradable, and it will, you know, it will d- disappear in the grass. But to make uh, a chair out of that is a completely different cup of tea because it has completely different uh, uh, structural uh, qualities and you can't use it so much into these kind of materials because you you need somehow it it will become very unelegant or you know there's all kind of restrictions to that so it's it's something you know there's certainly I also noticed this among clients there's an absolute wishful thinking for doing that but it's it's not that easy. And then you have to get your moral compass on and say, are we going to do, make a, are we going to make a decision about worse and less worse? Or are we not going to do it at all? How sophisticated is the infrastructure around design to sort of enable that? Because it's all well and good telling people to recycle, that they ought to be taking objects in to be repaired or disassembled or whatever. But if there aren't networks that enable that, if you don't know where to take it or whether the company will take it back to repair it, that, that's not so helpful. So how is the industry doing on that side? Are there systems in place to enable these ideas? Emerging, uh, I'd say emerging um, by the day, uh, and small businesses and large uh, businesses. I think you know um, both on sort of the second-hand sales and refurbishing. There's uh, there's things happening, but also in the material supply uh, industry and the waste handling, the sorting uh, industry 
is becoming specialized and very professional. So, so the sorting uh, problem that you mentioned in that case is, is I think, is uh, well, certainly with with size, it's possible to solve already. We, we've solved it. We found ways to do this on a big scale industrially, um, and they, they, these possibilities will will improve. We've tried a buyback scheme in uh, in our own house in uh, in the Dutch market. We have quite an elaborate buyback scheme for the most widespread uh, task chair on, uh, in, in Holland. Um, we've had it since, since 2013, well documented. Uh, we offer to buy any buy back any of those chairs for 50, 60 euros, I believe now. Uh, and we have a small production line that refurbishes it. The problem is that even after six years and, and in Holland, which is quite a progressive uh, economy, all we managed to sell is 2,000 units. And this that you have to relate to the 1.8 million units we manufacture in total. So even if we offer it, even if we promote it, even if it's favorably priced, um, you know, it's, it's a very hard uh, sell because people want new stuff. But then, you know, when, once we have uh, worked with that challenge, there's a few things that you can, that you sort of realize. The one thing is that, you know, in this case, what you're doing, if this is your sustainability effort, if this, if this is your circular effort, what you're doing is asking your customer to behave in a circular fashion. Whereas you're not asking yourself the, the same question, how am I procuring circularly? Right. So we yes, yes, we will push these uh, these models further. We will enable um, uh, refurbishers uh, to refurbish our products. We will allow access to our spare parts. We have designed for refurbishing since uh, since years uh, now. So as I said, there's no there's no glue in the task chairs, for instance. Um, they can be repaired with hand tools. Um, Don't you think, though, that that it has to, because you're obviously one of the few kind of change leaders that are providing mm -hmm. these models of best practice, but for it to be really taken up and ma have mass impact, um, it, it surely it has to be legislated as well. Like, I think, I think right, it's saying that it's France that has just um, introduced that uh, by law that products have to be repairable you know because they used to be i remember going to like a washing machine shop or a lawnmower repair shop with my parents but that just doesn't really exist anymore does it and and it feels like we have to get back to that and it's not only going to be and the legislation doesn't seem to we don't seem to have the governments to you know that are pushing that so i think it's quite exciting that we've got people you know and hopefully all of us that are actually pushing government to, to, to be more proactive in that legislation so that there is a really holistic approach. But I think uh, that's one thing. But And you could, you could sort of sit around or you could promote such a change. But these are yeah. long processes. And I'm, I, I, you know, we don't have the conscience to, to wait for that. And, you know, things have to happen, yeah. happen sooner. So what you, what you should do is, is then, um, if, if this is the success or the lack of success we had doing this in-house, how about spreading it? How about promoting social entrepreneurship? How about enabling them to take part in this, this economy? By providing them the uh, the, the access to uh, to what they need to repair. I mean, these are things that we need to comp contemplate as an industry going forward, because taking back only our own products is not a very customer focused uh, way. Or, but it's obvious that we it's hard for us to do anything uh, different than that. You've been listening to a Desenia podcast. For more podcasts, visit desenyadaily.com.